Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the podcast. We are continuing in our series through the New Testament as we, uh, man, we're, we're going really quick through the Gospels and then it slowed down a little bit in Acts and Romans took a Revelation 20,000 years which might have only been like 10 episodes, but now we're in first Corinthians. And I think we're slowing down again. This is going to be fun. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, what do we want to cover tonight? Uh, well, we're going to look at uh, start in chapter seven, but we'll kind of go back to chapters four, five, and six briefly and kind of look at the the, the letter of Paul and uh, what he's dealing with. And boy, did he have a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've already looked at the first six ish chapters kind of we've been, we've been bounced around, but uh, there's this transition that happens in chapter seven, starting at verse one. Uh, so what makes this part of the, uh, the letter stand out as distinct from what we've already seen? Yeah. Chapter seven, verse one, Paul says now concerning the things about which you wrote. So all of a sudden now Paul transitions to the letter that they wrote to him mm-hmm. and as we go through the, the rest of this letter now, pay attention to this phrase, now concerning, because he's already told us now concerning is the way he's introducing the matters that they wrote to, to him. So you'll see it again in chapter eight, and then you see it in chapter 12, which is an indication that like eight through 11 is, is one larger topic. You have to mm-hmm. keep that in mind. And then 12, you'll see it again. So we'll just pay attention to what's going on. So Paul's responding to a letter that they wrote to him. If we could maybe just stop here then, because there's a number of things that we should note that are really important for understanding first Corinthians. And, uh, you know, even to some extent, all new Testament letters, uh, we should probably look at some things. So we noted in an early episode, it could be a problem for us when we're hearing one end of the telephone conversation, when we're reading biblical letters, because we don't know the other correspondence. We don't even know. I, I remember I had a, a prophet one point going through the letters saying how, and I forget in which letter it is that indicates that he actually had already written another letter. So first yeah. Corinthians might actually technically be second Corinthians Correct. and second Corinthians might be third Corinthians. It's just, yeah. we only have these two. And there might actually even be five because okay. we think chapters 10 through 13 of second Corinthians are a separate letter. And then in second Corinthians, he makes reference to an earlier letter that doesn't seem to make any, that doesn't seem to fit first Corinthians or what we call first Corinthians. And in first Corinthians, he makes reference to a previous letter. So it's like, there could be four or five, you know, three to five different letters, correspondences. Yeah, that's right. So uh, what we're talking about then is that the letters are occasional documents. They're written to an occasion. Something happened or something is happening in, such, in, in a city or in a church that is causing Paul or Peter or James or Jude to respond. Even the book of Revelation, there's something that's going on that, that they're responding to. Now, our task, and I think most many Christians that have been in the church for any period of time, they're familiar with this a little bit. Our task is to determine like, well, what's that occasion? Mm-hmm. We say, you know, we have to know who wrote it, why he wrote it, when did he write it, to whom was he writing it? Those, those kind of questions there. And sometimes it's not that difficult. Um, the book of Galatians, for the most part, we kind of know what's going on. There. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we have no idea, like the book of Hebrews. I mean, we have no mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. who wrote this letter, yeah. let alone when they wrote it, before 70, after 70, let alone to whom they wrote it. it we know that the... The people to whom Hebrews was written were suffering some kind of persecution, yet they haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, it says. so. But the thing that makes Corinthians so difficult now is, as you mentioned, that it's like listening to a telephone conversation, and we've used that analogy before, that we don't know what the other person on the other end is actually saying. They've got a letter that they wrote to Paul, 
And we know only as we read Paul what their letter actually says. And so it just means we have to be careful and be cautious. Sometimes we, we oh, he's addressing this. Well, are we certain? So we have to be careful. And then that also, it makes sense to us then when we're reading these things and taking them seriously as being um, occasional letters where we know we're only hearing one of the telephone conversation, we could come across stuff and just think, man, Paul, like this doesn't make sense. Or like, I don't get what you're saying, or I can't believe you would say this. And and, and this is just needing to take uh, seriously the occasion that that it, it's just not this manifesto that someone is writing or this biography where they're assuming ignorance on the audience's part. The audience knows what's happening and we are the ones who are ignorant. Yeah. Well, what makes it specifically difficult now is Paul seems to be quoting their letter and he mm -hmm. does this in Galatians too. We'll see it in Galatians. He seems to be quoting them. And so sometimes we read it and we're like, oh, I can't believe Paul would say this. And it's like, well, he's not saying this. It's them who are saying this. And then Paul's kind of responding. Now, some people might go, well, wait a minute. You know, it's in the Bible. Of course, Paul's saying it. Mm -hmm. It's like, listen, in the book of Genesis, it, you know, the serpent comes up and says, you will surely not die. Is that true? Well, it's true that the serpent said it, mm -hmm. but it's also true that the serpent's lying, mm -hmm. right? Or he's deceiving them. And so, yes, you have lies in the Bible, not because the Bible is lying, but because the Bible is quoting a liar. It's capturing but, a lie. Yeah, yeah it's capturing mm -hmm. a lie. So also you have this issue in 1 Corinthians then. And let's look at a couple of, of examples, or at least one to begin with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 8, and this is one of those where we can say, oh, I can totally see why Paul would be saying this. But then we look at it carefully, like, oh, maybe Paul's not saying this. So 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8 says, you are already filled. You've already become rich and you've become kings without us. You go, yeah, we could totally wrap a theology around. Yeah, they've been filled with the spirit. That's mm -hmm. Acts chapter two and Pentecost. They're Christians. They've already become rich. Yeah, you're totally rich in Christ. Mm -hmm. And they become kings. Yeah, we're all kings and queens in yep. God's kingdom. Revelation chapter one, yep. verse six. So we could totally see why Paul is saying this. But then the last phrase, like without us, we're like, oh, wait a minute. How, how could they become kings without us? And then Paul continues and says, and indeed, I wish that you had become kings, mm -hmm. meaning uh, you actually haven't become kings. So it appears that they were saying these things. They were saying, oh, we're filled. We'll see this in chapter 12 to 14, that they're, they're claiming this superiority with regards to spiritual gifts. So they're saying, we've already become filled. We're, we're, we're rich and we're kings. And Paul's like, yeah, not really. Paul says, I wish that you had become kings. So that you might also reign, or so that we might also reign with you. Mm -hmm. And so we see, oh, okay. I stopped for a second there. I thought Paul was saying this, but he actually wasn't wasn't saying this. Uh, another example that we're going to get to later on is in, in chapter um, fourteen, where Paul says, you know, women must be silent. And we're like, what do we do with that, right? And it's like, well, maybe that's not Paul. Maybe Paul is saying, okay, you're saying this, but here's the problem. And the reason why I think that might not be Paul is the fact that he already said in chapter 12 and 11 that women can pray and prophesy in church. And they're saying, well, they have to pray and prophesy with their heads covered. Well, it appears that maybe some of the people in Corinth were saying, no, you women have to be silent. Mm -hmm. And so again, we have to discern what's Paul saying, and chapter 11 will be another great example of this, and what are they saying and Paul's quoting them. And we'll see this, of course, in chapter seven that we're going to deal with tonight. One of the things that we saw as a, kind of a theme that Paul did in Romans is he would ask questions and then answer with, by no means. He had like these things that yeah. you would you would see pop up all over the place. We, we see something similar 
in first Corinthians where he would say, do you not know like that? That's kind of his phrase that he pops up. It's cool to see like that consistency in teaching where he's just, you know, he he has this one way of doing it in the different, you know, in in each letter. So what's the significance of this in first Corinthians? What are we seeing here? Yeah. This is way that Paul is responding to them by saying, and I, I did a little search on this, and as far as I can tell, this phrase occurs 10 times in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? What Paul's saying is like, look, your actions testify that you don't know this truth, but we, but you know this truth, but you're not living according it, or what you're teaching or what you're saying doesn't actually correspond to this. Let's look at some examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know? that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So it's like, hey, listen, you're boasting in this, and the context is this immoral person in the congregation, and they're, they're not only not doing something about the immoral person, they're actually boasting in it. And Paul's like, look, a little leaven, a little bit of yeast infiltrates the entire body. So if you allow this person to stay in the church, it's going to corrupt the whole body. So do you not know? And then he says in chapter six, verse two, and we won't get into the details of this, but it's an interesting conversation. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And chapter one is like, hey, you guys are taking your disputes before pagan courts. How are you taking disputable matters to non-believers? Don't you know? We will judge the world. And I think Paul said, like, you know this, but your actions of suing one another say that you don't know this. Now, this brings up a really intriguing example now. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 are two pretty popular verses. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, we look at this and we go, okay, Paul's giving us a list of the people that don't inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul is writing this to the church saying, you guys in your actions don't seem to understand that what you're doing makes you the unrighteous who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Mm. He's not like, I'm I'm trying to inform you guys what kind of people don't make it. He's saying, I'm trying to inform you that what you're doing means that you won't make it. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually kind of upside down from the way that we commonly use this particular passage in the church. So another example then as we continue where It's like, is Paul saying this or are they saying this? Kind of continuing on that same thing. And then Paul's saying, okay, look, here's what's going on. It's in verse 12, the same chapter. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Again, we could reason how Paul would be saying that. But the next phrase is like, but not all things are profitable. And it makes sense to say they're the ones claiming all things are lawful. And Paul's like, well, yeah, you're right, but... Not all things are profitable. So another thing that Paul does is he says, okay, well, let's take what you say and I'll grant it, but then let me give you an exception. So the next line of verse 12 says, all things are lawful for me. Again, same statement, but I will not be mastered by anything. So it's like, okay, even if all things were lawful, I don't know that Paul's actually agreeing that all things Mm -hmm. are lawful. I think Paul's taking their statement saying, okay, let's just say it's true. Even if it were true, that doesn't make it profitable for you. And even if it were true, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to be mastered by anything. So then it goes on verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach is for food, 
Again, that's something that they're saying. And Paul's answer is, yeah, well, maybe that's true, but God's going to do away with both of them. And then the next phrase is, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. I think what they were saying is, in the same way that the body is for food and food is for the body, so also the body is for sex. And therefore, let the more the merrier. And Paul's like, no, because immorality is not for the body. And then he goes on verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but he'll also raise us up through his power. Do you not know? Which means the way you're living says that you don't know this, but you do know this, or you should know this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know, verse 16, that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one in body with her? It says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you receive from God, and that you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So I hope that makes sense. Paul's taking their arguments and saying, well, even if that's true, here's the, here's the reality. I don't know if all things are lawful. Yeah, well, it doesn't mean it's profitable or it doesn't mean I'm going to be willing to be mastered by it. And guess what? Not all things are lawful because immorality is not what God made the body for. In fact, your body now has become a the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore flee immorality. So I have a question then for you on this. Should we interpret that phrase, do you not know? Because I'm kind of, I could kind of hear it in two different ways. Okay. Um, is it that Paul is saying, like, if we were to like maybe paraphrase it, like, come on, guys, you know, because they actually do know. Right. Or is it like, no, this is something that you need to know. So it's more on the right. other. Like, he's actually like, bringing correction on them because they actually know these things. I think they're already, the. I think the way you said it, the former one, uh -huh, okay. that they already know this, but yet what they're advocating for or what they're doing contradicts what they know. So it's, it's when you're correcting your kid. Come on. You know that you had to clean your room before you watch TV. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not telling them. Why are you asking if you can watch TV right okay. now? You okay. know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's the case. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's just kind of, a, we don't really speak that way it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I could see it being interpreted a couple different ways, but that, I think that's the yeah. way I, I, I read it. It makes, yeah. it makes sense there. But, it, and it's also interesting because that the way you interpret how that phrase is uh, to, you know, in terms of those two ways of, is it new information or is it reminding them of something they already knew? That's also speaking to the ethics that the church already did have. Yeah. So they're not learning for the first time that they right. shouldn't be getting drunk at communion. They're not learning right. for the first time that they shouldn't be sleeping with their dad's uh, you know, they're, they're their father's wife, you know, like, it's like, you guys know that, come on. Right. Uh, it's not a new ethic that they're having to learn. So Paul is dealing with a ton of different types of factions in the church. And our job is to really discern to whom he is speaking and what he is saying. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And I said, I said a few times now, I think if you think your church is bad, you just got to see Corinth. And I think, and we'll get into this in second Corinthians also. And that is how, difficult Paul's life and ministry was. I don't think anyone has ever experienced um, such turmoil in ministry as Paul did. 
So we know we've got one group that we're saying like all sex is okay because that's why God made the body, right? Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul's like, yeah, but not really. Uh, we have another group, which we're going to see now in chapter seven as we turn there, that we're saying, no, you shouldn't have sex at all. Well, and they were saying, some of them were saying, you can't have sex in marriage unless it's for children. So you need to go to a prostitute for mm. your sexual satisfaction. It's like, where do you come up with these things? Another group was like not allowing divorce uh, with a non-Christian spouse who wanted to leave. And we know that's a pretty popular verse and we'll deal with that. Uh, others were saying, no, you need to divorce your non-Christian spouse for all these other reasons. And it's just, so he's got all these different groups out there and trying to deal with them all. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And we haven't gotten to chapter 12 where some were claiming spiritual gifts and made them elite and special. And the, you know, I speak of the tongues of men and of angels, which is probably what they were claiming. Paul's like, yeah, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. You're, you're mm -hmm. a noisy gong or a, or a clanging symbol. So there were a lot of different groups causing a lot of different troubles. Some were saying women have to wear head coverings. Some were saying women can't speak in church. They have to be quiet. They should go home and talk to their husbands if they have any questions. And wow, what a mess. What an incredible congregation this is. Hmm. Okay. So let's actually jump into chapter seven. Okay. Uh, first seven verses. If you want to, do, do we want to read those or do we want to yeah. look at them? Or... Yeah. You want to read them? Okay. So verse, uh, verse one, chapter seven. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman, her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote uh, yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I will say this. I wish that all, whereas I am, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Yeah, real simple here. The context <laughs> appears to be sexual relationships within a marriage. Now, there was a debate that we seem to be aware of in the Roman world as to whether or not sex was permitted for pleasure or to be reserved only for procreation. So it appears that that debate has infiltrated some within the church in Corinth. And it was being argued that, well, sex is okay in marriage only for having children. All of the sexual relations need to be done outside of marriage. And for Paul, that's immorality. That's why there's that list in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that mm -hmm. the fornicators and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So the slogan that is, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman uh, for pleasure appears to be probably what they're saying. Now, the translations are difficult here. Uh, the New American Standard says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. I think your translation said not to have sexual relations mm -hmm. with a woman. And again, I think the woman here is your spouse. And so the idea was we need to abstain from sexual relationships within a marriage. Paul's answer is like, you know, I don't know about this one here. So he goes on to say, you know, you can't deprive one another. That's not going to work. Because the problem is this. You might have this high and mighty and holy objective. What We want to dedicate ourselves and devote ourselves to the Lord. And the answer is, Paul's going to say is, yeah, but the sex drive hasn't gone away. Mm -hmm. And if the sex drive hasn't gone away, they're going to find a way to get it satisfied some other way. 
and that's not going to be acceptable. So sorry, you can't deprive one another. Now, throughout this chapter, we're going to see this phrase, let each person or each man remain in the condition in which they were called. And it's difficult to discern, is this something that they're saying, hey, just remain in the situation in which you were called? Because some were saying, you can't get divorced if your non-Christian spouse wants to get divorced. And, or is this something that Paul was saying? And it seems to be that Paul is endorsing a slogan of theirs, but always wanted to give some exceptions to it. So remain as you are must be something that they were saying and Paul and Paul's agreeing with them, but then he's saying, well, yeah, maybe not. So let me, let me ask you something here, Rob, as you're going through and you're doing, you're, you seem to be very deliberate about asking questions like, okay, is this what Paul is asking or is he right. answering something or do they ask that? What about the person who's listening to this right now? Who's yeah. just like, they're just like, Hey, it's just in the Bible. No, Rob, it seems like you're doing. Yeah. too much gymnastics here. Why can't you just take Paul for what he's saying? And he's obviously just addressing this. Like, is that a fair critique or a... It's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's a valid question. But again, the answer is if that's the case, then you end up having Paul say things that he contradicts a few verses later. Okay. Uh, or having Paul say things that just aren't true. Um, and so like all things are lawful for me. Well, um, if you take all things are lawful for me, that means anything goes, including sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. I mean, all things are lawful. And he clearly says, sorry, the body was not made for sexual immorality. So he's quoting them and saying, well, you can say that. And let's just suppose that's true, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Mm -hmm. And so even if that were true, I'm, those things are going to master you. Now, and, and oh, by the way, even if that's true, it's not profitable. So why would I do it? So I think we can, and it's difficult, and this is going to especially be the case in chapter 11. And mm -hmm. I think, I'm not sure that this is absolutely the case, but in chapter 14, where he says mm -hmm. a woman, a woman must be silent. Yeah. That just doesn't make sense that that's something that Paul would say. I mean, he, he clearly believes in the ability for women to pray and prophesy in church. The debate in chapter 11 was whether they should have to have their head covers when doing so. And Paul's like, no, that's ridiculous. So they're going to be silent, ask their husbands at home. And that seems much more likely that somebody, some of the leading men in the, in the church were saying, were imposing that rule and Paul's replying to it. So yeah, I totally understand the question, valid question, fair, but we have a process and responsibility to recognize that, hey, Paul, he says, as for the matters you wrote about, and he's replying to their letter. And it appears to be some case, in some cases that he's, uh, that he's quoting them. And, yeah, he and I certainly does this in Galatians too. Well, and I was gonna say, I'm thinking ahead, you know, we've done Romans and so now we have, yeah. you know, this and then 11 other letters of Paul. Yeah. I'm trying to think, are there many times where we're going to have to do this sort of thing? And, and a lot of times, no, no, right now. Exactly. And so because it's so unique, you either have to ask the question, why are we doing this here when we're not applying this consistently? Otherwise to the other letters. And, and your point is because this is what the letter demands when we're reading it. Yeah, this letter demands. This right? letter. Yeah. yeah, he's specific. He he's clearly citing them and replying to them, and he doesn't appear to be doing that in First Thessalonians or mm -hmm, other other mm -hmm. letters. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it makes it it does make it difficult. And the answer is, hey, listen, we're there's a few times where we're gonna go. I think this is what Paul's doing. I think he's quoting them and saying a woman should be silent in the church. I don't think that's Paul. You can say, no, it's in there. It's, it's okay. 
I think if you say that, you've got a dilemma on your hands because mm-hmm. Paul appears to be significantly putting down women, which is exactly the opposite of what he's doing throughout the rest of the letter. But okay, let's work with that. But some other cases, I'm like, there's no way he's that, that, that this is Paul. He's not saying uh, everything's lawful for me. Therefore, go, go ahead, do whatever you want. I don't, I don't think he's saying that. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy. Uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. So then when we're looking at this because this is uh we see this this context of marriage here is paul saying well okay so it's good not to marry but since there is so much immorality we must forbid asceticism within marriage is is that basically what he's saying yes so in in verses five and six paul seems to make a concession they seem to say okay listen the reason why we are not uh, having sex within marriage Uh, let alone this cultural issue of whether or not sex was only for procreation or sex was for recreation also, or for, you know, for pleasure within a marriage. They're saying is, well, because we want to devote ourselves to the Lord. And this, by the way, is the passage where some denominations and some branches of Christendom say, yes, exactly. To devote yourself to the Lord, you get more time and more attention. Mm -hmm. If you're not married, you have more time and attention. If you don't have kids, you have more time and attention to focus on spiritual things. And so, some become monks and some become ascetics and some become priests. And that's, and there's your distinction there. And I don't think we're going to say that's necessarily wrong, Mm -hmm. um, but Paul's like, you're already married. And if you're already married, you don't get to say, sorry, no more sex. Paul's like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. But he does say, okay, I'll tell you what, verse six, verse five, he says, you know what? If you want to deprive one another for a period of time and devote yourself to prayer fine, but come together again so that Satan mm-hmm. will not tempt you back because of your lack of self-control. And he says in verse six, I say this by way of concession. It's not a command. I am not commanding that all married couples take a period of time where there's no sexual relations so that they can spend time in prayer. I'm not mm-hmm. commanding that, but I will go ahead and say, if you want to do that and you both agree, that's fine, but don't let that be too long lest Satan come in and, and uh, tempt you. And yeah, real quick, let's actually address what is a probably a very practical thing because you said that there's some denominations that promote this or you know like something like we, we all know about monks and we've seen you know movies about the middle ages and that kind of thing but I, i've i've seen this uh maybe used i'm just thinking in my own congregation and the types of people who are single yeah and there's like there's people who desperately want to be in a relationship they just haven't found that and other well-meaning people will try to encourage them with a passage like this yeah and it's like on their end it's like do they actually have a desire to have a spouse and so using this passage is not edifying them it's 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 just like you're trying to fix the person and throw a bible verse at them meanwhile like i know other people who are like they're content being single and that's there, there are a lot, and this would apply to that. I, I, I'm just wondering if you've counseled people, whether they're widows or widowers, or just they've been single their whole life, or uh, how this passage might have come up in a pastoral context. So we're going to certainly get into this in our next episode next week also, mm-hmm. right? Because the second part of this chapter, Paul talks about singles and singleness. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, that I want, I'll point out now, and that is the church does a horrible job 
of making singles equal on par with everybody else. They're mm -hmm. just looked down upon mm -hmm. as, oh, you're not married. What's wrong with you? Oh, you, oh, you just couldn't find somebody or you must not be good enough. And some of them actually truly want to be single. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's, they're fine with it. They're good with it. And I think Paul affirms them. He just totally affirms them. So I preached a sermon a series to the book of First Corinthians a number of years ago. And when I got to that passage on singles, I, I put something out on, I think I put it on, on Facebook, said, hey, if you're single, you know, tell me how you feel and what you think the church treats you or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I got a number of responses back that I, some of them I put in, in the midst of my sermon. And they were like, we do not feel equal with everybody else. We feel like we're put down. Those who are divorced, you know, we're, something's wrong with you. You've made a mistake. You mm -hmm. committed a sin. You don't qualify for being a pastor any longer. I think this is a serious issue. I, I think many within the church yeah. neglect and look down upon those who are divorced or those who are single. I mean, and there are people that are widows. Yeah. And it's like, my spouse died. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how long have you been married? Right. That's a common question. You, you, you come up with an older couple, especially how long have you been married? Oh, like eight years. You're like, whoa, you're like 67. What's going on? Well, my wife died. Yeah. Oh, because your first thought is, oh, are you divorced? And this is a remarriage. Yeah. Yeah. No, your spouse died. Oh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, and and so I think we need to be really careful about how we do this and, and how we make married and marriage sanctified and others are not sanctified. Yeah. I, I'm thinking back real quickly to a uh, a time it was about eight years ago and I I transitioned off of a staff at a church, uh, which means you you don't just like stop working at the church, but then you find a new church. It was, it was really weird. And I, I was visiting a lot of churches in my area saying, okay, where would I want to land? And there was this one church that I felt like, Hey, this would work out theologically. I'm aligned mm -hmm. with them. And I remember visiting, and it was a smaller church, maybe a hundred people in the congregation where they met in a school. And it's one of those things where everyone knows who's in the yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. And I went there and I was kind of, I, I went there alone that week. It was mm -hmm. just me. Oh, yeah. And I was awkwardly kind of greeted by people they gave me the bulletin and i sat by myself you know and no one greeted me however you could tell that there was a first time family that happened to sit right behind me mm -hmm. mom dad and two or three kids like you know prototypical you know family yeah i did not get greeted by anyone there wow. and i ended up leaving but right after that service was over that family was completely love bombed yeah. And, and that was the first time I ever realized, oh, wow, like they don't know what to do with a single guy at a church service, but you have a family here that's that's visiting a, a, a smaller church. Yeah. Like this increases our, you know, our, yeah. our membership. Our Sunday school how, attendance, our exactly, church, our exactly. ministry. And, and, I, and I don't want to pretend I know the motives yeah. and I'm sure the people were, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I just don't want to go there, but it, yeah. it was really yeah. interesting. Sure. It was the first time I really noticed, oh, wow, this is a thing. They don't know what to do with a single guy right. in his thirties at that point, but a family, yeah. they will be all over them. Yeah. One of the things that some of the singles said to me, and again, I guess we'll talk about some of this next week also, yeah. but was that when they did have events for singles, it was always like almost a matchmaking thing. Yes. And it's like, I'm not, I don't want to have a matchmaking. Thing. I mm -hmm. mean, some didn't, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and of course some people go because that's the whole idea. Yep. I'm single. Yep. I want to go find somebody. And so that, that was problematic there. And churches have dinners for Valentine's day. Yep. And it's like, Hey, everyone, you know, get your tickets for the Valentine's dinner. It's like, I don't want to have a date and go on a valentine yeah i don't, i think we don't realize that we're actually excluding people yes yeah 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 absolutely so 
is though like regardless of what we're saying here is paul saying that in verse seven that singleness is preferred or it's just an option i think he's saying it's an option i mean we it seems to be the case that paul was single which is very interesting because paul to be accelerating up the the ladder of judaism he had to have been married i mean jesus is an anomaly a 30 year old rabbi who's not married that just doesn't make any sense uh, but it appears that paul was married but his wife is no longer with him we don't know if he's a widow or if she left him after he embraced christianity we have no idea all we know is that when Paul begins his Christian ministry, he's single. Mm. Uh, but he seems to say, you know what? And, and again, they're saying, you should remain as you are. And Paul's like, okay, well, if that means single, then you're single. That's fine. But he says, yeah, but only if you have the gift. Mm. Only if you have the gift of celibacy. So yeah, there's no doubt that singleness has its ability to devote oneself to spiritual matters, but it's not advantageous for those who do not have the gift. And I think that's what, what Paul would be stressing there. Okay. It's uh, easy to justify extreme behaviors so we could easily reason that abstaining for sex, uh, from sexual relationships, it makes us more spiritual because we're focusing on God and earthly things like that. And it makes sense that yeah. that would be there. Yeah, it, it, it does. It makes sense for someone who's going to become a priest to remain celibate uh, so that they can focus on ministry and things of that nature. But the answer is, if God hasn't given you the gift, then God mm -hmm. doesn't isn't calling you to do that. I, I think there's another sort of interesting aspect of that. In other words, I'm not going to look down upon someone who's a Catholic priest. I'm not. Mm -hmm. But is it surprising that there's all these issues of pedophilia? Yeah, I was I was literally just thinking of this right before yeah. you said that. Yeah, and and it's like, yeah, I, I think that's an issue. I think you mm -hmm. have to think about this. You have people that are told that they cannot have sexual relations and they don't have the gift. And they don't know how to express this. And so they can't express it with another adult. So they, they take it out on children. I, mm -hmm. I think that could be, I don't know the psychology and sociology of all that and stuff like that, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually the case. Mm -hmm. At the same time, people that do have the gift, you know, look at Mother Teresa and the, the unbelievable things that she did. But there's also something to be said now for the fact that ministry can happen in a family too. Mm -hmm. And raising children to be disciples of Jesus Christ is a great thing. And then there's one other thing that's this. How does a priest who's never been married or had kids counsel mm -hmm. a family with half young kids? All they are thinking of is their own personal experience of being a child, but they don't, it's hard to counsel, you know, the, the idea of how do you counsel someone who's lost a spouse when you haven't lost your spouse? How do you counsel someone who's losing a parent when you haven't lost a parent? Mm -hmm. If you've lost a parent, you have a much better ability to empathize and to counsel those, those individuals. I think that's valid. I think that's fair. I think that's true. Which by the way, you know, how many of our young pastors that start in youth ministry yeah, yeah. are counseling parents of teenagers? So it's like, your only experience, dude, is you were a teenager like five years ago. Yeah. You have never raised teenagers. And so you, but you're the authority because you're, you're a pastor. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily negative. I'm just saying we, we got to be careful about that. And that's actually something I appreciate. Our kids pastor, uh, he has, I'm, I'm really good friends with him and his kids are like five and two. Mm. And so like, that's something that he was so aware of when he, when he stepped into this role, he actually was our junior high pastor and he stepped into that. And, and that's like, he'll, talk to parents like he'll be like hey 
I'm like, you're farther along on this than I am. Like, I want to learn from you to also to make sure that you're not going in with the attitude of since I hold this position, I, I have to be this omniscient type of voice where it's like, no, I'm, I don't know about this. And I'm humble enough to admit that. Yeah. And by the way, there are people that have studied youth ministry. Yeah. And so they were taught a lot of things about youth and the cult and the culture and they, and youth come to them and share with them things that they might not share with parents. So they do know things. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. just saying they haven't had the experience of actually raising, Absolutely. you know, uh, a 13 year old yet. So be careful there. That's yep, all. Yep. Yep. So verses eight and nine, it says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So like what, what is happening in this, in this section? Okay. Unmarried so verse, and widows. Yeah. Verse eight says to the unmarried and to the widows. And likely these are both like male and female widows. In other words, if the unmarried refers to all unmarried, mm-hmm. then it includes widows too. So the phrase unmarried and the widows, it's kind of redundant. But the idea would be, well, the unmarried are singles who've never married. And then widows are people that have been married, but now they're, they're widows. I think the actual, the both terms complement one another and refer to men who were previously married and are mm-hmm. now widowed and women who were previously married and are now uh, widowed. The fact is that Paul is going to address those who've never married at all in verses 25 through 38. So the first term unmarried probably refers to men who, are, who have become widows. And therefore this section is dealing with people who have who've been previously married so you think that some, some people were demanding that these people never remarry them, the widows and unmarried? Yeah. I, again, if the, if the slogan, if the slogan remain as you are is mm-hmm. their slogan and Paul's like, well, okay, but let's make some exceptions. If they don't have the gift, you can allow them marry. And I think that's what he's, what he's saying. He's like, yeah, it makes sense that they should remain unmarried because they can devote themselves to uh, the church and things of that nature. But if it's the case that they don't have the gift, as he says in verse nine, then let them remarry. I don't think we'd read verse nine, but if, if they do not have self-control, verse nine mm-hmm. of chapter seven, then let them marry for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So verse 10, then it, it shifts to the married. It says to the married, I give this charge. And then he says, not I, but the Lord. So I, I'm assuming we're gonna have to address that yeah. weird parenthetical phrase. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay. Paul is continuing his response to this uh, faction in the church and the statement, not I, but the Lord probably means, I'd say more than probably, I, I think this is actually what it means, is he's saying, this is something Jesus said. So he's saying, no, I'm not saying this, the Lord's saying, people have taken that statement to go, well, what do we do this? I think Paul's answer is, this is something that Jesus addressed. Uh, and during his earthly ministry, of course, Jesus, in fact, did say this, Mark chapter 10, he talks about uh, women cannot seek a divorce, which is really interesting because in the Palestinian uh, Judean culture, women could not seek divorce. Mm-hmm. But I think of, by the way, that in Mark chapter 10, if you look at the passage carefully, he's talking about Herod who married his wife, his brother's sister. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, that again. He's talking to Herod, who married his brother's wife, uh, who was his, their niece. So one of the Herods, I think it was Philip, married his niece. And then Herodias, that niece, then divorces her, her husband to marry Herod Antipas. And Jesus is like, uh, look, if a woman instigates divorce, nah, it's not going to be a good idea. They, she, she can't do that. 
Paul's answer is like, okay, look, if she does leave, which might be more practical now in a, in a cultural context, let her remain unmarried. Now, he also has then the husband's not to divorce his wife. The focus of this, so at this point in time, then is on preserving the marriage and, and maintaining that marriage. All right. So verses 12 through 16 says to the rest. So this is not the married and unmarried and all those other people that we've already addressed. Now to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she uh, consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. And as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will be whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he has this phrase now, it's the inverse of what he was saying earlier. Now he's saying, it's I, not the Lord, yeah. who's saying this. And, and this is oftentimes interpreted as saying, well, when he said it about Jesus, it, it, this is binding, this is law. Yeah. Now he's just giving his opinion. Is that what's happening here? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, no. So some take the first statement as like, yeah, the Lord says this. Mm -hmm. And then oh, I say this, which means it's just my opinion. And the answer is no, Paul's writing under inspiration. So as he says this, even if he's saying it as an opinion, is still inspired by the spirit of God and therefore becomes authoritative as an, as an apostle. But I think the distinction is he's saying, Hey, look, this is something Jesus said during his earthly ministry. And then this is something now that I'm addressing. Mm -hmm. And he's referring to something specifically thing about the context. The gospel now has come to Corinth. It's come to the Roman world, to the Greek parts of the world. And many people begin to convert, but their spouse might not. Jesus didn't have to address this because he's speaking to the Jewish world and they're mm -hmm. all Jews. So it's not like there's unequally yokedness there going on. But in the context of Corinth, if one of the persons becomes a Christian and the other one doesn't, then you have this unbeliever believer dynamic. And Paul's like, here's the, here's the reality. And that is if your unbelieving spouse wants to remain in the marriage, then keep the marriage, you know, re retain it. After all, you, you never know what might happen. However, if the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, then Paul's answer is, yeah, go ahead and allow them. I, I think what happens here is that some are thinking, well, the Bible condemns divorce. Jesus doesn't permit divorce. It's not allowed unless it's marital unfaithfulness. It's not marital unfaithfulness. My husband just wants to leave or my wife just wants to leave. And Paul's like, you know what? Pursuing peace is a Christian attitude and a, and a Christian value that we need to maintain. And so it's okay to allow them to, to leave if need be. All right. So we use the word sanctified to refer to the process of becoming holy. Uh, do you think that that's what Paul is doing here when he uses it? Yeah. So verse 14, he says, the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. He's talking about the context of this unbelieving spouse that doesn't want the divorce, that they, they're fine keeping the marriage. And Paul's like, listen, don't send them away just because they're unbelieving. Retain the marriage and keep, and keep the marriage. After all, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified through the believing spouse. Does that mean the unbelieving person is saved? It's like, no, no, no. I don't think Paul's using the word sanctified here in some technical jargon. Mm -hmm. the, the word sanctified typically means to, to be part of the, the process of becoming holy. 
The idea being you're justified, you're made right with God, and then you begin this process of becoming sanctified, which I think is too simplistic. But nonetheless, so sanctified is what only true of believers, that they become becoming holy, which you can only do once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't think Paul's using the word sanctified in that technical sense there. I think mm -hmm. he's saying that under the umbrella of the blessing that comes to God's covenant people, uh, the idea being that because a person in the household is a follower of Jesus, they have grace and mercy that the spirit of God provides for them. And the unbelieving spouse gets to partake of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually applied this just recently teaching through the book of Romans, where when, when Paul is uh, wrestling with, hey, what advantage does, does the Jew not have an advantage? Of course he does. He was given the prophets and the law and all these sorts of things. Exactly. It's just that's not the thing that saves him. And this is the example I made in our class, which is, hey, there's a, a young couple who has a, a couple kids who are really young. Do, do their little kids have an advantage because they grow up in a house with mom and dad who are right. Christians? Absolutely. Is it an advantage over the kid who's growing up in the atheist house? It's totally an advantage over that. However, both kids are in the same spot, but they need to be justified before God and the, the, they need to repent and believe. And so there is an advantage, but it doesn't mean that they're in the club. Does a person have a greater chance or likelihood? Is there a greater likelihood that that person will become a Christian if they grow up in a Christian society, mm -hmm. a Christian culture, and a Christian home? Versus a person who grows up in a Hindu culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. A person who grows up in a Hindu culture might have, culture might have no knowledge of Jesus and salvation and the Bible and the, the work of Christ and the kingdom of God. So, yeah. All right. So in 15 and 16, it, 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 verses 15 and 16, it seems like Paul is permitting divorce. We know that Jesus permits divorce for marital unfaithfulness. So right. it, like this is one of those sections where it seems yeah. like Paul is giving additional provisions. Is that what's happening here? Yeah, it's very interesting, right? That Jesus uh, does, you know, in Mark 10, Jesus simply says, no, divorce is not allowed. That's the way it is. And he's referring to the creation edict that, that in the kingdom of God, it's the restoration of creation. And in the creation edict, there was no divorce. So that's kind of the ideal. However, we know from other passages in the gospels, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, that Jesus goes on to say, yeah, in the case of marital unfaithfulness, then especially because the woman is, is in an abusive situation now, let's permit divorce so that that woman especially can get remarried and have the opportunity for basically economic and mm -hmm. social survival. So Jesus does permit divorce in case of marital unfaithfulness. Now, Paul comes along and says, okay, if a non-believing spouse wants a divorce, which wouldn't have happened in, in the Jewish community that Jesus was dealing with in Galilee and Judea. Sure. But now it's a reality, as we mentioned already, in the context of Corinth and the greater Greco-Roman world. And Paul's like, look, you're not bound. And you can imagine some people going, oh, Jesus said we can't get divorced. I can't let my husband leave. He wants mm -hmm. to leave because I became a Christian and he, he doesn't want anything to do with me, but I can't let that happen. And Paul's like, no, you can let that happen. It's not on you. It's their desire and let them leave. So divorce is a major issue in the Western world. Yeah. And I, and I want to say world and like you look at statistically, like 50% of marriages are going to end in divorce, yeah. but the church almost follows the same trajectory in terms of uh, those sorts of numbers. So do you think that there are other reasons that are make divorce permissible from a biblical standpoint? I know that something as a church we've had to wrestle with uh, and our leadership has wrestled with even looking at things like what does abuse mean and is that limited mm -hmm. just to physical abuse because that include 
emotional uh, and psychological abuse. And there's all these other caveats that aren't clear, but there's definitely a jagged line there, uh, you know, from scripture to the application. I don't, where, where do you go with this? It's very common that we hear that Christians get divorced at the same rate as non-Christians. And the answer is that's not true. Um, people that profess to be Christians, but don't go to church, okay. get divorced at the same rate as non-Christians, or even in a higher rate sometimes. But people that are Christians and actually attend churches and are participating in the local church, they actually divorce at a significantly lower rate. Mm. So that's actually something that we might, not, might need to be aware of. It's interesting because it raises the question, if Jesus permits divorce for this situation, and then all of a sudden another situation arises that wasn't relevant for Jesus in the Galilean Judean culture. And again, we're not talking about it's okay to marry a non-Christian because Paul's going to say that's not really the thing to do in the, at the end of this chapter. But a Christian, a person becomes a Christian and their spouse does not, and the spouse wants to seek a divorce. And Paul's like, allow them to leave. So Paul adds this provision. And so it raises the question, are there situations that maybe Paul didn't envision and that wasn't a reality that Paul addressed that all of a sudden now come into the church and say, oh yeah, divorce can be permissible here. Now, someone might say, no way, we can't do it because we have the sacred scriptures and Paul's permission for divorce was within the context of inspired scripture. I totally can respect that. But I think if you look at a situation like abuse, the reality is... Um, let me speak to a couple of things to it. Number one, self-defense is biblical, mm -hmm. especially for a person who is um, being abused, especially a, a female that's being abused and they have no way. You know, God gave you loud lungs, scream as loud as you can, mm -hmm. do what you need to do. The next thing I'd say is the person who's being abused needs to find safety immediately. And they need to remain in a place that's safe um, as long as they can until the abuser is made well, which may take years and it may never even happen. Um, the problem is that abusers, abused people often think it's their fault because they're mm -hmm. made to think it's their fault, especially one of the ways that people do abuse is they say, you did that. And, and they just really un, almost unbearably demean the, their victims. And so the victims become thinking that they're responsible for this. And they also think that they have a responsibility to make the person well. And the answer is you're probably not capable of making them well. Uh, they need help. And that immediate help is going to have to come from an outside source. We have all kinds of other issues that have that come into play here. And that is because we don't have a good system in our society for uh, housing that allows, I don't know, a lot of these battered spouses have nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, they get separation for a time and then they, they have to go home because that's the only place that they, they, they don't want to be homeless. And we put them back into a into a situation where they're actually going to become more, more abused. I think we need to deal with that on a societal level. But I think we need to find a way for the church to come in and say, let's care for both individuals and make sure that the abused person gets the help that they need, but the victim gets the help that they need and they need to stay separate for a period of time. Mm. Now, the question becomes, what about divorce in such cases? Is it, is it reasonable? I can tell you my own story. My father left when I was fairly young. I think, I don't know how old I was. I think I was about six and he was just never around beforehand. So it's, it's literally hard to know when my dad left. I remember my mom telling us a story, Hey, your dad's left. And I don't remember how old I was. I think I was six, but uh, some, somewhere along there. Well, my dad found out that my mom told us and he had been gone for two months. That tells you how often he was home and how involved he was in our life. He was gone for several months. 
And my mom's like, I, I can't lie to you anymore. Your dad's not working late and, and leaving for work early. He, he, he has left for another woman. My dad flipped when my mom told us that and became violent. So he was abusive um, and violent and yelling and, and physically violent in our home. I, I have two brothers. They're, they will be 11 and 10. They're four and five years older than I am. We couldn't restrain him. He's six one, you know. Well, he says he was six one. He's probably like five eleven. But nonetheless, he was a big, a strong man, and we, we couldn't restrain him. And we would call the police, and the police would come over and say, "There's nothing we can do. It's his home, mm. because they're legally married, and it's legally his house." So he would break the. We'd lock him out, and he would break the door down. I mean, he literally broke our front door down at least three different times. Mm. And then he called the next day and said he was sorry. I was like, ah, that doesn't work, Dad. Sorry. But the police would say, we can't do anything about it. My mom literally had to file for separation, legal separation, in order to protect us and, and keep us legally, keep us protected. Um, at, at some point, then the question of, well, you know, she can be legally separated, but can she, you know, get divorced? And it's like, well, if she doesn't get divorced, my dad's with another woman, and that's not going to stop. And that mm -hmm. happened. For a couple of years now, are we to say that my mom has no right to actually get married again? And she never did, by the way. She, she did not get married ever, ever again. But I think the idea that's that she can get divorced in that situation for her own safety and well-being and for her and for her to move forward in life, I think that's permissible. So I, I think permissible in situations of abuse and violence and in this instance, you could say my father was not a Christian and he sought divorce. It's like, he, he might not have said it, but his actions said so. And I think someone that's an, an abuser is saying, I don't value this marriage. And of course, people who are, are abusers say, oh, I love you. And that's why I'm doing it. And I'll get better. They, they say all the right things. So I think it can be permissible within situations of abuse. And I think we have to be careful here. I don't think we want to add to the scriptures, but I think even reading the scriptures carefully, I think we can make, make, make grounds for which this is uh, um, something that's, that's acceptable to do. Yeah. And I, it's such a difficult situation and especially one of those ones where hopefully there, even with the person who is the, the solo scriptura person that we've talked about, like who only wants to go exactly what the Bible says, not solo, but solo, like, you know, they're only saying, what, what do the words say? And, and that's what it means. Hopefully there's a wrestling there to say, man, I want to always err on the side of providing for the abused. Yeah. Especially if it's in a situation like that. I know a couple of people, different schools of thought, not people, but schools of thoughts in, in my own tradition that uh, will say, they view marriage as a, a more of a theological covenant that says it's an image of what Christ does to his church. Right. And since, since Christ has a covenant with his people, he will never forsake her. Therefore that is one of the, the motivations. There's people who would, who would, uh, you know, pastors who would tell your mom say, no, you can never get remarried right. because there's a chance that your husband might come back to you. Right. Um, it, just like Christ is, is never going to leave his church. There's other people who would have a view that would their their theology of marriage would say this is a covenant that God has given to societies, and so um, it takes more along those roads 
which I, I still don't know if I fully understand, you know, either one of the arguments, because uh, it just doesn't seem like it's, it's totally fleshed out in scripture in terms of the systematic theology. But how do you take just the idea of marriage in that sense of, is it more of an institution that is for societies at large, that is for all kinds of people? Or do you see this as a, a Christocentric type thing? Or uh, do, you, do you parse it out in those kind of uh, ways? Because I think that helps it, it inform like, for, for the person who's struggling right now in terms of how we see divorce and remarriage, if there's a very high view of Jesus and the church as the foreshadow of this, or yeah. this is something that the government's allowed us to do, therefore the government kind of dictates what laws for divorces are. I don't know. It, that, that just seems mm -hmm. to murky the waters in terms of where we go to making these decisions. I don't know that I've thought enough about it to make any kind of contribution to this conversation. I, mm -hmm. I'd hesitate to say, because I don't want people to take what we say with some air of authority, right? Yeah. And go, hey, here's this is what Rob and Vinny said on the podcast. Like, and and they know the Bible, and Rob's got a PhD, and that that I think we just need to be careful there. I do think that we are reflecting the creational ordinance in marriage: the two shall become one flesh, and the unity that's. Uh, there in the church and Paul even advocates and obviously in Ephesians to say, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think there's something there, mm -hmm. but I don't know that I flushed it out enough that I would want to speak with any level of, of confidence on it. So do you think that then this topic is one of those things that everything that is need to be said on divorce and remarriage and those sorts of things is in scripture? Or do, do you think it leaves a little bit of a looseness where there, there's some uh, using wisdom in using these biblical principles, some, some different conclusions can be pulled based on the time and, and space. Okay. So I can see how someone's going to be irate about the answer I'm about to give. Okay. But I would say, just stop for a second and realize that we're talking about real people and real situations. And we need, I think this is what wisdom means. Wisdom is taking the, the kingdom of God, the proclamation of scripture, and now applying it to a situation in, in the circumstances. And I would say, when we come up with hard rules, this is what the Bible says, and that's it. And we impose them. I think we can do more damage than good for the sake of the kingdom and for, for individuals. I think we need to be careful about that. And I, I, I know what I just said there can also be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. So I would conclude and say, I'm not sure that the Bible is addressing any and every situation. I, I think the Bible is giving is certainly biblical principles that the marriage vow should be honored and respected by all. Sexual immorality clearly is a violation of that marriage vow that mm -hmm. the two become one flesh. You just united, your, united yourself with someone else. You violated the marriage covenant. And if the spouse, the innocent spouse is willing to take you back, then that's great. That, that's, that's awesome. Especially, I don't think people understand the fact of, you know, I'm a victim of uh, divorced parents. And I think mm -hmm. uh, you are also, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. I don't think people reckon enough with what this does to the kids. And um, if therefore a spouse is willing to take their husband or wife back, I think that's great. But I think at the same time, then we have these, if I can to answer your question, I guess I'd say, I think we have these principles in store that we need to understand. And there's a, a great level of complexity there. And I think we need to move forward with counseling and urging them to do what we think is biblical and godly and, and Christ-like. But I think we also need to stop and say, you know what? 
I'm not going to walk in and go, oh, you're divorced or, oh, you've been divorced. I think that's a problem. I, I think we need to stop and say, you know what? We can't go, oh, I'm better than you because I've never been divorced. I think this has been a big issue and a big problem in the church. Yeah. So you're seeing it as principles versus formula. Yeah, but I'm. He- but if you notice, I hesitated saying that. I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't say the word principles. Mm-hmm. I don't think I did. I'll have to no. go back and listen to that. Listen to the recording. But um, I'm hesitating saying, "Oh, yeah, there's there's law or there's principles." I think there's somewhere in the middle there. Uh-huh. That yeah, we have principles, and I think we also have law, and I think we dwell in the middle of that. And I think wisdom, which the entire Bible is wisdom scripture. Wisdom says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's meant to be meditated on and chewed on and then applied in a situation. And I don't think the Bible has this, it's a um, guidebook that gives us all the answers. I think it's a guidebook that says, here's where you go and, and go in this direction. And now you have to discern through the spirit what is right or wrong in this situation. I think there are some black and white, but I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of gray too. Yeah. And or I it think, could just be you're a biblical scholar and you won't come to a firm conclusion on a theological topic. That's what it is. Say it again. It's just because you're a biblical scholar. So you won't come to a firm uh, conclusion yeah, yeah. on a, a theological topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just ribbing you on that one. But I, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. because we realize and go, you know, there's more there than you think. <laughs> yeah. Because the theologian would be quick to jump on this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. well, this is good. I think the important thing to note is like, though, this is something to struggle through and take serious yeah. and not minimize one way or the other, not minimize to just say, oh, it's just easy. Don't ever get a divorce. And, and you don't want to just be like, oh, that's just for the past. Uh, we could do whatever we want now. It's it's no, there is a struggle there to, to truly understand how would Pastor Paul, if he was in this yeah. situation in, in our context, how would he minister to our congregations? Yeah. Yeah. And I think until you're in those situations, I think you have to be careful about, about, oh, okay, I'm going to walk into this and there's a rule and, and here's how it works. Here's how it flushes out. Let me throw one more thing out there. I know we've got to go because mm-hmm. we uh, too long. There's so much to say about divorce uh, and remarriage there also. Maybe we can pick up some of it next week as we discuss the end of first Corinthians chapter seven. I think as a young person who grew up without a father, because I just, I basically, I did. I never played catch with my dad. I never threw a baseball with my dad. I never threw a football with my dad. I, I never did any of those things with my dad. I, I have no recollection of any of those things at, at all. And it was traumatic throughout my teens and my early uh, 20s and things like that also. I longed for an older man to have a role in my life. Mm-hmm. I just did. I, I always have. Um, because I never had that growing up. I, I longed for that. And my mom didn't provide that. And I'm, she couldn't provide for that. I think there's a lot of young couples that are looking for older couples to say, hey, would you guys just take us under your wings and speak to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think we need, I think we need to do a better job of mentoring and discipling within yeah. our communities. And I know some people are like, well, we're in our second marriage, so we wouldn't be good marriage mentors. Actually, you'd be great marriage mentors. Because you've been through divorces and you've been through, and you can speak to a young couple who's mm-hmm. having troubles or whatever it might be. I think we need to set up in place mentoring situations with 20 year olds with teenagers and mentoring them, and with young couples being mentored by older couples and older men mentoring younger men, older women mentoring younger women. I, I think we need to do a better job of this. And I think. There are people that are hurting and they don't know where to go. And I think, unfortunately, the church has not always been a safe place. Mm-hmm. And I think it needs to be. And I yeah. think we have so much experience that we can really do a great job 
for the people within our communities uh, if we did that. Amen. I think that's a great word. Hey, so next week we'll finish up uh, the rest of chapter seven. I hope so. Yes. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows with us? Yeah. We could just talk about one verse. Cool. All righty. We'll keep reading through uh, first Corinthians and we'll catch you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.